Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church. Do want to re remind everybody that we are recording on Skype, and we would ask that you would please mute your microphone so that you don't become part of the message today. All right. Let's begin by entering into prayer. Come on in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son Jesus Christ. We thank you that you rescued us from a certain fate in the lake of fire by sending your son to die for our sins. We thank you, Father, that you raised him from the dead on the third day. We thank you that you have given salvation as a gift by grace through faith. Father, we thank you that we're all able to gather here again together face to face. We ask, Father, for your continued protection against the virus, against all the things that... Uh, we're facing these days, Father, both physical, mental, and spiritual. We pray especially for the persecuted church around the world, and in particular, Christians in Afghanistan at this time. And we ask for the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit for all that will be going on, the message, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, our fellowship with one another. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> well, welcome back to the in-person services, everybody. It's great to see everyone again. It's okay to see your little circles on Skype, but it's a lot better to see all of your hair. So we're happy about that. We thank the Lord for bringing that about. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of service today. Also, I want to give you a schedule note. I will be out of town on the weekend of Sunday, September 26th. That's two weeks from today. Um, I'll give you more information about whether or not what we'll do in my steed um, next Sunday. I don't know. I think we'll probably not do anything. We might, I might be able to, um, from where I'm at, give a message on Sunday on Skype. So that's one of the other, but it's two weeks from today, um, Sunday, September 26th. Okay, let's begin. Let's turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 7. John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And the title of our message today comes from John chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Feast of Booths was near. Now the Feast of Booths was near. By the way, the Feast of Booths is near right now. And where we are, I'll show you that in a couple of weeks, uh, will be the celebration of that feast, also called Tabernacles. Um, Sukkot is the Hebrew word. So we're going, to be we're going to be studying this Feast of Booths this morning. And um, let's begin in John chapter 7. We the first 13 verses or we won't get through all of that today but at least you can give the you can see the picture john 7 1 after these things jesus was walking in galilee he was unwilling to walk in judea because the jews were seeking to kill him now the feast of the jews the feast of booths was near therefore his brothers said to him leave here and go into judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. 
And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. And so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, in chapter 7, the scene shifts. We've been in Galilee in chapter 6, where we saw the miracle of the feeding the 5,000 with two lo- five loaves and two fish. We saw Jesus in his discourse on the bread of life, who he is. That's all in Galilee. But as we see here in verse 1, starting in chapter 7, we are now the scene will shift from Galilee to Jerusalem, to Judea. As a matter of fact, in this gospel, the gospel of John, we will not see Galilee anymore. And in fact, if you if you compare John with the other gospel writers, um, there's uh, this is pretty much the, the we see the same time period in John as the was recorded in the other gospels. So it's about a year. Jesus was in Galilee about a year. Look at again at John chapter seven, verse one. After these things. Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We'll see more about that, but we saw all the way back in chapter 4, the the, the beginnings of the uh, opposition, the the, uh, enmity between the Pharisees and the leaders in Jerusalem on the one hand and Jesus in his ministry. And it was very small in chapter four. It gets larger, this opposition, this rage in chapter five. Uh, and then here in chapter seven, it's going to be even more. And then it's going to keep going and it's going to get more and more and more, um, more and more anger, more and more determination on the part of the leaders to have him killed. And so we see that here today. We'll go back and we'll look at some of those earlier episodes. So you can kind of see how it builds already to where we are right now. Now, once again, here in chapter seven, we have that those words that we've seen before after these things. We've gone through that a couple of times. Um, it, remember, it marks a gap in time between what preceded it and what follows it. So there's a gap of time between the end of chapter six and the beginning. Now you can see that because in verse one, he says, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. So he remained in Galilee after all that was recorded in chapter six. And then um, it, it then what follows it, as we see this morning, will be when he actually does go to Jerusalem. So there's a gap of time there. Matter of fact, you know, John records directly about six months of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, but it continued after the events of chapter six. His Galilean ministry is going to continue for another six months. Now, John doesn't record this. That's why we have after these things as a marker of time. But Matthew does. And if you wanted to see what fits between the end of chapter six and chapter seven, verse one, you can go to Matthew chapter 14, 34, all the way to the end of chapter 18. And you'll see all the other events that occurred in this gap of time between the end of chapter six and the beginning of chapter seven. Now that we know that that period covered just under six months. We know that because of the feasts. John is very diligent about recording when the different feasts of the Jews occur. And he did that back in chapter at the beginning of chapter six. And we'll see that. 
As a matter of fact, if you could turn now to John chapter 6, starting in verse 4. John chapter 6, verse 4. I've mentioned this before, but if it weren't for the Gospel of John, we would know almost nothing about Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem and Judea. We would we would think, were it not for the Gospel of John, that his public ministry was about a year. Because that's how it looks from the point of view of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's only John who exp- expands that to three years, three years plus. And, he, and the way he does that is by bringing in information about his, again, his his ministry in Jerusalem, in Judea, which is not recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But look at John chapter 6, verse 4. Now the Passover. There it is. Now the Passover. The feast of the Jews was near. And therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, again, this is the beginning in chapter six. This is right before Jesus is going to feed, as you can see, the 5,000. He turns to Philip. He sees a large crowd coming and he turns to Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? That's the beginning of that miracle. And you can see the time of that. He mentions the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. By the way, um, I handed out this morning. Uh, everyone should hopefully have one of these. Um, Calvin needs one. You get one. Okay, great. We're all we're all good. Awesome. So these are the seven feasts of the Lord that the Lord gave to the people of of, of Israel. Um, there are other feasts that, that the Jews celebrate today, but they they weren't included in the ones that were sort of official, the ones that the Lord had established for His people. So these are the seven. Um, and if you look at it, at, at first, the thing I want you to see most of all is that there are spring feasts and you can see the the, the, the picture there like pictures where like the, the, the flowers are budding in springtime and then the fall feasts and um and then in between there's one and so passover was a spring feast it happened in the first month of the year it's kind of terms of the hebrew calendar and if you can see so that's the see the very first one is passover and then the very last one is the feast we're going to study today, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of um, Booths. It's also called Sukkot in the Hebrew. So I want you to basically I want you to see that there's a passage of time. And since one's in the spring and one's in the fall, you can already see that's more or less six months. And we'll see that it's exactly six Hebrew months. Because Hebrew months are by the lunar calendar. So in other words, you know, Every month is 30 days the way we look at it. All right. So um, so and so that that allows you to define the date specifically in the Hebrew calendar. And then uh, because that's what everything is reckoned with, especially in the in fact, even in the New Testament, um, everything is according to the Hebrew calendar. Takes some getting used to, to remember that, which is why when we look at this feast, the feast of the booths. Go go back to John chapter seven, verse two. Now, John seven, two, just skip over there another chapter. And again, we're, we're, tra- we're going past the rest of the events in chapter 6. All of those occurred at, a, at around the time of Passover. You, know, you can see that, um, that that whole event between him feeding the 5,000 and then spending the night alone, sending the disciples ahead of him, and then him walking on the water, and then, then heading on the other side um, to Capernaum, and then 
the rest of chapter six, it all occurred in a couple of days. So it's all during the time of the Feast of Passover. But look at John chapter seven, verse. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. So we get transported from the feast of Passover to the feast of booths. Not much in John in between. Okay, but we can see there's a passage of time. Now, again, to repeat, Passover was a spring feast. We know that today. It's usually around the same time as Resurrection Day, somewhere close to that. Um, and that's no accident because Jesus actually died on the Passover. So it's a spring feast. And as a matter of fact, um, if you want to get exact about it, you have to, again, use the Hebrew calendar. The first month of the Hebrew year is called Nisan. Okay, not the car, but the month. And uh, on the 14th day of that first month of the Hebrew calendar, that's Passover. That's when Passover occurred. And not only does it occur in the feast calendars of, of, of the, the Jews, it actually occurred, the first Passover occurred on that exact same day. It's a, it's a very um, important date. There's a lot of things that happen on this particular date um, in, 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 in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So the 14th day of Nisan, first month of the Hebrew year, March or April. That's the spring feast. Now, I passed out this diagram so we can all look at it. See, I knew it was kind of tough to read some of that. But that's pretty big. That's actually might even be bigger than this. You know what? That's pretty good. So, again, we have the. Uh, OK, we got the pen, oh, laser pointer. Sorry, I'm playing with my toys now. All right. So, again, we have you have this right. In front of you. We have the Passover over here. We have the tabernacles over here. And again, it's about you can see that there's um, a six month, but you can't see that too well here. But basically, oh yeah, here it is. This is the first month and the seventh month. So you get three feasts in the first month, three in the seventh month. So they're all packed together in two different periods. But in the middle, you have Pentecost, which is sort of all by itself. It's 50 days. You can see the 50 days here between this one, the Feast of First Fruits, which is in Nisan, and then 50 more days. And it's Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest in the spring when the, the wheat and the barley crops were being harvested. So um, and, and we know that also in terms of the church, we know that the Holy Spirit first came upon the church here in the book of Acts, also on the Feast of Pentecost. So you have that one in the middle and then you have these three in the fall or specifically in the seventh month of the Hebrew year, which is called Tishri, Tishri. So what that tells us is Booths was a fall feast. And, and as a matter of fact, we know the exact dates in the Hebrew calendar for the Feast of Booths also. It was the 15th through the 22nd days of Tishri, which are the seventh month of the Hebrew year. We're going to see in a moment that this was specified in the book of Leviticus. There's no guessing here. The Lord through through the book of Leviticus, those writings that he gave to Moses, specified exactly the dates in the Hebrew calendar, the 15th through the 22nd. This is an eight-day feast. Right? There's seven days, and then there's a, a great convocation on the eighth day, the last great day of the feast. And we, if you've been reading in the Gospel of John, that expression on the last day, the great day of the feast, that should hopefully ring a little bell, because later on in chapter 7, we're going to see that, that Jesus is going to come in after his brothers go, probably on the fourth day of the feast, they went up for the first day of partying, and then he's probably coming on the fourth day, and then he says on the last day, something very significant happens in, in the Gospel of John. So we'll see all of that, but I want to give you today the background, this feast that really serves as the backdrop for chapter 7.
So again, seventh month of the Hebrew year, our September, October. So you got from March, April to September, October, and that is about six months. Matter of fact, we'll see in a minute that is exactly is exactly six months in the Hebrew calendar. There were exactly six Hebrew or lunar months between the Passover and the Feast of Booths. And you can see it. See the we have the which day of Nisan is it? You see 14th, right? Okay, the 14th, right? And then then which day of Tishri does it start? 15. So it's, like, it's exactly six lunar months between the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Booths. I'm going to take this laser off. So, um, so in other words, we know exactly what, what the timing is. We know exactly how much time passed between the, the, what, 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 the events in Chapter 6 the events in Chapter 7. So... We will return today to the narrative in chapter 7, but today we're going to stop at this point and we're going to look and learn about this Feast of Booths. It's also called Tabernacles. You may hear that. It's also called Sukkot. My Jewish neighbor called it that yesterday when I was telling him what I was going to teach on today. Um, that's the Hebrew word for it. I think it's also appropriate, as I mentioned, because that's the, that's the next feast. As a matter of fact, let me show you that in terms of... Okay, so... So today, um, we did, they just uh, celebrated the Feast of Trumpets. They don't call it that anymore. They call it, what do they just celebrate in the Jews? Rosh Hashanah, right. They consider it their new year, but in fact, it was in the seventh month um, of, the, of the Hebrew calendar of the Old Testament. So they just celebrated that, I believe, on Thursday. They celebrate the Day of Atonement this Thursday coming up. And then the following week, they will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'll give you the exact dates later. So I thought it was pretty appropriate. Day and do some learning about the feasts, particularly this one that's referenced in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John. This Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyous feast of the year for the Jews. There are a number of reasons for that, what it, what it recounted, what it looked forward to, but also the time of year it was. This was the time of year when all the harvests were in and the Lord was giving them a week-long celebration. And it was it was very joyous, the most joyous feast of the uh, again, the, the Hebrew word was Sukkot. Also, the feast There's a lot of names for this. So I'm going to probably use them all on once. So you get the idea. You know what? They're all the same holiday. Feast day. Feast of booths, Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot all talks about the same uh, feast of the Jews, the, the feast that the Lord gave them. Now, what was unique about this and, and they, Jews today that are practicing still do this. All right. They live, they live in makeshift booths. They don't live in their homes for this week. Right? They build this their own structures out of branches and leaves and today flowers. And they really go hardcore. I'll show you a picture. Um, in that day and age, what was happening was the pilgrims. This was one of the three feasts that the, that the Lord said, if you are able-bodied, you, should come to, you have to come to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Now, that meant that there were Jews coming from all kinds of different places, not just, not just in the rest of Israel, but even those who had been dispersed in other countries. They would come. Now, what they would, what they would do is they would build these things and live in them for a week. Now, the people that lived in, in Jerusalem, they cheated. And what they did was they just put it on the roof. Well, they still had their house. They would just put it on the roof. That was cheating. But in any event, here's a picture of one. And you can see that today, this is, of course, outside somebody's house. 
And you can kind of see there's an understructure here. And there's look at this. There's all of these. And in a way, it's just like being in a tent for a week. No, it's like camp. And, and, that, and it was actually a big camp. It was like uh, a big picnic for a week. It was very, you can imagine, if you can picture it today, for a week, you just stop everything. And you build one of these and you go live in it, you know. Now, the women are probably saying, I don't really like that very much. The teenage boys are like, oh, yeah, let's do that, right? Um, but one of the things that it did was that it, it made everybody equal. So you think about it, you have like the ruling class, and they were, you know, always lording it over the people, and they lived in the best palace, homes and all of that. Other people had shacks and so forth. But for this week, everybody's in the same boat. Or should I say, so it was a great equalizer, levelizer. And um, that was actually on purpose, to, to re reunite the people. Okay. So that's what it looked like. And... Uh, it was also, I just mentioned a minute ago that there were three feasts where, although it specified that the people who were able to should come to Jerusalem and celebrate it. This was the last of the year. Passover was another one. Pentecost was, so that there's three of them. And I, I want to keep referring to, the, well, why not? We're among friends. You can kind of see the the, uh, the balance of it all. See now, this is the these are the seven feasts again on the diagram. You can see the very first one was one that the Lord said, come to Jerusalem, the very middle one, Pentecost, wants you all to be in Jerusalem for that. And then the last one, the Feast of Tabernacles, please come to Jerusalem. Well, it was this third one that was the most well attended by far of those three. You might say, why is that? Well, the reason is um, it's actually a practical reason at that time. See, most of the people were engaged in farming. So here you have um, this period of time, you have them harvesting the wheat and the barley. So a lot of them were like, gee, I don't know. I want to stay here and harvest. You know, they shouldn't have with human nature being what it is. Here, they were planting the fall crops. And then here, of course, everything's done. And so they were already. Right? It's kind of like how we feel at Christmas time. You know, and it's like, oh, great. We're taking a week off. All the work is done. So it was the most well attended of all. Um, let me get back to where I was. We're about to go to Leviticus, as you can see. Um, in fact, let's go there now. Um, one of the reasons I decided to, to dedicate this morning to this feast was because of the book of Leviticus and the way it's described there. And it's really important. Leviticus is a book that we don't go to a lot. You know, I think we should go to it more. Um, a lot of people, myself included, I fall into this trap. You think, well, that's all the rules and the regulations. We're not under that anymore. But the fact is that it's a beautiful book. It is a book that in every respect um, looks forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us. So if you look at it in that light, it becomes beautiful. And I want you to see the description this morning of the Feast of Booths, the way that the Lord uh, described it, laid it out, instructed the people. Look at Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 33. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. On the first day is a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day 
you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. Verse 37. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings, each day's matter on its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your votive and freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. You know, it's natural, I suppose, human nature to look at the precepts that the Lord gives and think of them as burdens. And I suppose if you approach it that way, if you approach it in a legalistic manner, then they are, you know. But on the other hand, if you think of it instead as some, as a gift, you know, think about it. Rather than saying, oh, no, I have to celebrate this feast. If you say, isn't it marvelous that the Lord has provided for us and has given us this period of time. And, and if you think about it, there is there is a great pleasure of everyone being together, all all participating in these sacrifices and so if you look at it that way, it really transforms it. And I want you to think about that, not only for what these feasts were all about, but for us also. A lot of times we, too, will look at a command in the New Testament and say, oh, here we go again. You know, we don't like that. We don't like to be told we have to do things. But on the other hand, in the same way, once you realize that he's, there's, a, there's a great purpose behind it, great blessing behind it, it really changes your perspective on a lot of things. So with that in mind, let's continue. Verse 39. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in here, this is the description when it occurs. Notice when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth. Now, on the first day, you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and bows of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. In other words, I want you to picture that. I want you to picture being a, a member of the of the uh, nation of Israel. And basically the Lord is sending you out to go gather flowers and branches. And, you know, it's kind of, it's in a way, it's sort of like what happens at Christmas time again, where where people actually go out and they cut down their own tree. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's, it's great fun if you think about it. A very joyful time. Everybody's in the fields and they're all bringing these things together and bringing them back. And then they may have a competition about how much of this and that and building it. It's just a, it's a great time. You really think of it that way rather than you have to do this. Again, verse 40, on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Now, you see, it wouldn't, again, you know, we can say, oh, he's telling us we have to be happy. (laughs) Well, actually, he gives you the reason to be happy first. You see, he gives you a great harvest, a great blessing. And then he says, not only do I want you to receive it, I want you to feel the joy of it. That's really what he's saying. It's it's not really a burden at all. It It follows naturally. He's giving you permission. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast for the Lord for seven days. Of, it shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. In other words, you'll do it every year. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths. 
so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord, your God. And so Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. I want you to notice verse 43, because here we find out what we ought to look, what they were to look back to. That the Feast of Booths was, was, a, was a unique in the sense that, not unique, but wonderful in the sense that there was a looking back. There was a looking at the present situation and a looking forward. And here in verse 43, we see the looking back. And he's saying, I want you to think about when, when, when Israel was in the wilderness and I had the sons of Israel live in booths. They, that was what they had to do. They couldn't build houses. They were on the move all the time. So they had these temporary structures that they lived in. And the, and the Lord said, I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So they were they were thinking back to the deliverance of the Lord. But also they were thinking about from where they were then they were in the land. So it was looking back and saying, yes, he, he sustained the people through the wilderness. And they had those conditions. But look where we are now. We're in our own land. We have our own homes. And so as a means of, of actually honoring what those people did, honoring the Lord, you know, preserving them through that, a little humility along the way, but also a great celebration of where they were then. So that's the first part, looking back. This was a delightful, happy, boisterous time, celebration. And again, this feast, first of all, look back. Look back to the wandering of the Jews in the wilderness when they had to live in these temporary huts. Now, they again, they rejoiced. Now they were at home. They were in the land. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths also coincided, remember, with the fall harvest, the end of the agricultural year. Again, that meant that all the crops were now safely gathered in. The barley and the wheat that they had reaped in the springtime. But here in the fall, it would be the grapes and the olives. So he had all of that, a great harvest. And then so they were celebrating the present, what the Lord had just done for them. I want you to learn to uh, turn to Exodus chapter 23, verse 16. Exodus 23, 16. See, the, the feasts, when they come up in the New Testament, are a great opportunity to go back into the Old Testament and refresh our memories or see them for the first time. The passages themselves that were the basis for these feasts. Look at Exodus chapter 23, verses 16 to 17. Exodus 23, verses 16 to 17. Also, you shall observe the feast of the harvest. By the way, that's Pentecost. Of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. That was the wheat harvest in the springtime. Also, the Feast of the Ingathering. Well, that's another name for the Feast of Booths. The Feast of the Ingathering. What that meant was they had already gathered in all of their crops. The Feast of the Ingathering at the end of the year, at the end of the, of, the, of the agricultural year, when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. And then three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So here we see he's talking about gathering the fruit of their labors from the field. And that's describing, again, the time that they were in, the time of year that they were in, the seasonality of it. Now, we already saw this once, but I want to refresh your memory that we just saw in the book of Leviticus that on the eighth day, okay, the last day, they called the great day of the feast, there was a special convocation. 
And that just meant that the people stopped and they worshiped the Lord as together as one great assembly. Now, this takes on a special significance in where we are right now. Go to John chapter 7, verse 37. Because we will, of course, study this in some detail. But since we're this morning, we're laying out this feast and seeing all the elements of it, the eight days of it, the last day is the great day of the feast. They have a convocation. They all gather together and worship. I want you to see what happens in, in, in the ministry of Jesus, in the city of Jerusalem, at, at this Feast of Booths. Look at chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, I want you to see the significance of what this is all about. Remember, it's the great day, it's the last day, it's a great celebration. You're in thanksgiving to the Lord for the harvest. And this is the day that Jesus selects to cry out in front of everybody. Remember, they're all gathered now. And isn't it a contrast between where we started in chapter 7, where Jesus said, I'm not going, to here on the, on the great day of the feast, he's now standing up for everybody. And he's making this declaration. This is another declaration that he is God in the flesh, that he is the chosen Messiah. Notice what he says. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Notice the focus is all on who he is and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, one of the other things about the Feast of Booths was that the, the drawing of water became a very prominent element of that feast. And so it was in that context that Jesus was saying, now that's something that you've done for years in the feast. I want to tell you the ultimate spiritual meaning of what you're doing, that when you believe in me, there will be rivers of living water. And that, of course, is the Holy Spirit who comes in and indwells every believer. So that's a sneak preview. We'll come back to that. Now, remember, I mentioned that this feast has a looking back, a present and a looking forward. And I'd like to now look forward. What does the Feast of Booths look forward to? Well, the answer is it looks forward forward to the future joys of the Messianic kingdom. In a sense, that will be a, a Feast of Booths every day because every day they'll have their needs provided for. Every day they'll be in the presence of the Lord. Uh, they'll still celebrate this feast, interestingly enough, during the, during the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. But this is what it's looking forward to, the, the ultimate joy of their being in the land and never being taken out again of the, of the joys of the Messianic kingdom. Now, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. And as you go there, I've got another nice picture for you. This one to me, I like it because of the nature in which it was painted. It gives you a sense of the prophetic element that, you, that there's something out there in the future related to this feast. And we're going to look at that something. Um, this, when Jesus comes back, the, the nation will all be regathered and they will all draw, draw deeply from the wells of salvation. The water will take on another another significance when Christ comes back. Look at Isaiah. Now let me give you the scripture. Isaiah chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Let's tie into the, 
to the Thursday evening Bible study when we're studying the book of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 12, verse 1. Then you will say on that day, that day is when the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. That was the other thing about the Feast of Booths. It, it was a, they, they were, there were a lot of singing going on because of the rejoicing. And here we see that as well. For the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I'd like you to turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Again, this is, this is prophetic in nature. It's looking out to the future. Zechariah records the events that occur when Jesus comes back. Obviously, they're also recorded in in, uh, the book of Revelation. But we have it here in Zechariah in some detail. I want you to notice in chapter 14, verse 16. Zechariah 14, 16. I'll give you a moment to get there. One of the later prophets. Zechariah 14, 16. Then you will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. <laughs> there it is again. Now, now what's interesting here is that, you know, in times of Jesus, in the times of the Old Testament, it was the nation of Israel that went to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. I want you to notice something different here. When the Lord comes back and he sets up that millennial kingdom, that ultimate feast of booths, notice who then comes. Then it will come about that any who are left of Israel that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and of booths. In other words, the whole world will be celebrating it when Christ comes back. All the nations, the Gentile nations, those who were formerly enemies of Egypt. We saw that in Isaiah when, the, when, when Isaiah described this time when Egypt, the traditional enemy of Israel, and Assyria, the great empire that was attacking Israel in the days of Isaiah, would all be streaming to Jerusalem. It's a great picture. It's part of the, our understanding and the importance of uh, understanding all the pieces of the kingdom that all the world will go. That they'll be, as it were, hanging on the clothing of the of the Jews to bring them into this great kingdom. And what will they do? What does what Zechariah describe in particular? He says they will worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. See, it was the last feast. And again, it's pointing forward to the kingdom, the ultimate, and, and the last in terms of the story of, of the nation of Israel. See, Passover was the beginning of the nation of Israel. Right. That's when they came out of Egypt. 
and they began. There was no nation of Israel until Moses led them out of, of Egypt. That was the beginning of the nation of Israel. And then, then the, the quote end of the nation of Israel is really, is really not an end, but it's the last piece of the story when Christ comes back, regathers the nation, and they'll be in, they'll be in Canaan forever. And the, and the Feast of Booths, that last feast, is the one that not only looks back, not only looks at the present, but looks to the future when the Lord will be back and the kingdom will be set up. Let's continue. Verse 17. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go to Jerusalem to worship the king, Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. That the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, and no rain will fall on them. There will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So now, remember, it was this Feast of Booths was a requirement of the, of the able-bodied Jews, right? When the Lord set it up in Leviticus. Now, he never said that they weren't, it wouldn't rain on them. But the point was, was that this was something that they were supposed to gather together. In the kingdom, all the nations will be required to do that. All right. So, um, by the way, I want to mention right now, since uh, I mentioned this twice already, that we're coming upon this Feast of Sukkot. It's in, the, in this year, 2021, it begins on the evening of Monday, September 20th. Today's the 12th. Next Sunday's the 19th. So it'll be that following Monday is when this feast will begin in 2021. And then if you go forward, it'll end seven days later. There's at sundown on Monday, September 27th. Again, the you know the Jewish day begins at sundown, right? It goes from sundown to sundown. And so they reckon days that way. That becomes an interesting element when, when people want to debate when Jesus died on the cross. And there's all that. I've long since put that in the rearview mirror. I'm not getting into that anymore. It's like, look, he died for us. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. You know, you worry about the calendar. But any event, um, Jewish year, Jewish day starts at sundown, ends at sundown uh, at 24 hours. Okay. Let's go back to John now as we get back to the gospel story itself, after we've taken this look at the Feast of Booths. John chapter 7, once again, verse 1. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now this is really interesting. You can imagine that his brothers probably witnessed or at least heard about the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, how can you miss it, right? But, but they still, it says they, didn't, they weren't believing in him, which meant they didn't understand the meaning. Just like so many of the other people didn't understand the meaning behind these miracles. What they saw was an opportunity for fame. That's what they were interested in. Hey, if my brother becomes a somebody, well, then I'm a somebody because my brothers are somebody. Very worldly viewpoint. 
totally missing the, 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 the whole point of it, which was to understand who your brother is. Right? Your brother is God in the flesh. But they, they were not interested in that. You know, they thought there are other places where in the, in, in the other Gospels where actually his family thought he was losing his mind when he started saying things like that. They love the miracles. They love the show. They love the idea that, you know, maybe he's, he is going to be somebody that's going to be very, very prominent in the nation any day now. OK, back in verse one, after these things, Jesus was walking Galilee. but He was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you were doing. Now, of course, they didn't give any thought to what, what would await Jesus when he was there. Again, they wanted to they wanted to see more people. There were a lot more people in Jerusalem than there were in Galilee, especially at this time of year with the feast. This is go there. I want every, they want people to see those miracles you're doing. And then here's the, here's the key. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. See, now that's the kicker. At that point, Jesus understood. He was omniscient, but he understood that they totally miss my motivation here. Nothing that he did was because he desired to be known publicly. Quite the opposite. He would anytime that started to happen, he would turn away and he would always point his focus back to the father. I'm here to do my father's will. I'm not here for myself. This is nothing to do with publicity, nothing to do with my fame and so forth. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. All right. So we see in verse one that the Jews were seeking to kill him. He was unwilling to walk in Judea. Because the Jews were seeking Jerusalem and Judea had already become a very dangerous place for Jesus to go. The Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. And and, and within Judea, the city of Jerusalem was the worst, the most dangerous for Jesus. Because not only was it the center of Jewish life, it was also the home turf of his enemies. They They were all in Jerusalem. They lived there. So for now, he was not willing to go there. I say that for now because it will change really soon. And some people, they say, wow, what was wrong with Jesus? He says he wasn't going. And then a little while after he goes, you know, was he confused? Did he change his mind? You know, well, we'll see none of that. Okay, it's just that Jesus didn't operate on the same time schedule as everybody else. And we'll see a little bit more about that. Now, he said he said he's not willing yet. Notice in verse one, he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, one might, you know, if you or I, we would say, yeah, I'd be unwilling to walk there either. If I knew people were going to kill me, I went to a certain city. But that was not the issue with Jesus. He was not afraid of those people at all. As a matter of fact, he was not afraid to die. What was the issue then? Why was he unwilling? And the answer is quite simple. It wasn't time yet. It was not his time to do that yet. Because, you see, Jesus never set his own itinerary. Never, not once. Everything that he did, he did on the itinerary of the father. So the timing for his different actions was the business of his father, not his. And so if it wasn't time yet, it wasn't time yet. We saw something similar in chapter two in the wedding feast of Cana, where his mother had said to him, they run out of wine. And he said, woman, what business is that of ours? My time has not yet come. 
right? He wasn't being rude. He was saying, listen, I'm on a different time schedule here. I'm on the time schedule of my father. Right? It's a heavenly time schedule. I, I'm not, what I do or don't do isn't going to be regulated by the situation. It's going to be guided by the, the will of my father. And the same thing here. Look at John chapter 5, verse 30. John 5, 30. We were here not too long ago, so this should explain why Jesus said, I'm not going, and then he went. John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. How humble is that? Think about it. This is God's son in the flesh, and he's saying, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Why? As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, the brothers thought he had his own desires, his own designs, like any human would. But he was saying, I do nothing on my own. Everything I do bases what I hear from my father. And I know that he is just and righteous and his timing is perfect and he is sovereign so I am never going to do my own will. I'm always going to do the will of him who sent me, God the Father. Now, this is a great example for us to follow, if you think about it. Now, we, we tend to make our own plans. You know, some people are more planners than others. You know, some people know what they're going to do in two years and stuff like that. Um, and that's the human way of looking at things. Let me plan. Let me think about the future. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do that. Imagine what it would be like, though, to change all of that and say, you know what? From now on, I'm not going to do anything on my own initiative. I'm no longer making any of my own plans. I'm going to do everything according to the will of God the Father. Now, that gets a little dicey, of course, because now the question is, is well, what's the will of God the Father for us? Now, Jesus had the advantage there because he was in constant communication with the Father. Oh, but by the way, so are we, or we can be, Right. God the Father speaks to us through the word of God. We speak to God the Father through prayer. So while it's not exactly the same, it certainly is something to consider that maybe I'm going to let go of this idea that I'm going to pack my schedule with all the things I want to do. And maybe I should realize that I should leave a lot more room for the Lord to take the initiative in my life and for him to lead me in places and activities where I never would have thought about it on my own. Like me going to Florida, for example. <laughs> I never would have come up with that. <laughs> but in any event, I, I shouldn't always get, see. I, I give myself as an example because I, I know myself better than anybody else. That I know anybody else. So it comes to mind real easy examples. But yeah, I mean that's that's Jesus setting an example here that we should consider. All right, and certainly the last part. I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Not my will, but Thine be done. We, we know the will of God better than any other people in time because of the completed scriptures. Because we have the, the epistles of Paul primarily that give us the will of God for the church, for the body of Christ. So, for example, it's the will of God that each one of us would receive a spiritual gift and employ it for the benefit of one another. Now, right there, we see a, a, perhaps a shift from maybe the way you see your life. And say, well, if I took that seriously and I understood that I have a gift to give others, particularly members of the body of Christ, now I have to seek out what that means. I have to see, well, what, what, where he's going to place me where I can exercise that gift. 
If I have the gift of encouragement, who should I be encouraging? If I have the gift of giving, where should I give? How should I give? And all of that requires you to just stop putting your own plans on hold and start by saying, this is the Lord's gift. This is the Lord's will for my life. His will is that we would love one another as Christ has loved us, that we would be forgiving. See, all of that requires an interruption of what we'd rather be doing. I mean, many of us find it very hard to forgive others. Now, and the only way really we're going to get good at that is by hearing the word of God again and again and again. And every time stopping and saying, there's something here that I need to pay attention to. And then I'm going to act on it. A lot of people don't like that acting on part either. They, they love hearing the word of God, but they don't realize that acting on it is the sort of completion of hearing it. And Jesus, you know, it's unmistakable if you hear Jesus speak to the people. He's going to say later on, if you know my commandments, you're blessed if you do them. That's very clear. You can't argue about that. You're blessed if you do them. He's going to say that many times. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so we can't leave that out. We always have to be saying that there is a challenge behind the word of God. And here what we're talking about is there's a shift that I should be doing on a regular basis between what I want and what God wants. When the father says, go, oh, Jesus, and he never was begrudging about it. He always went willingly and joyfully. And you want to know why? He had a one track mind. Glorify my father. Can you imagine how simple that makes life really? That's the other part. My yoke is easy, Jesus said. My burden is light. If you get the goal right, if you get your focus right, then all the things are pretty simple. For Jesus, it was simple. Glorify my father. How do I do that? It's simple. He's the one who's told me what to do and when to do it. As I hear, I judge. And see, we can do the same thing. Rather than using our eyes, our attitudes, you know, we, 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 we hear something about somebody or we're looking at a situation in the country today and we have we go we make judgments, don't we? Sometimes without thinking, usually. without thinking. And yet the Lord is saying, no, wait a minute. Stop. First, hear the word of God on that subject. Then you can make an evaluation. And 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 I tell you, it's these days there's so many hair trigger assumptions and judgments and, and, and vehemence and all kinds of things that are part of our culture in the United States today that work the opposite. I mean, there, there's certain people that they're on social media and they're in an echo chamber and they already know what they're going to say. If somebody says one word, they've got it all back. Boom, 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 right. Well, how about at least stopping for a minute and saying, what does the word of God have to say? Man, the president gets He's so upset. Wait, stop one minute. What does God say? He says, well, he says, you shall not speak ill of the leader of your people. He says, pray for your leaders. He says, obey everything that the leaders say. Ooh, you mean even now? Or, or about other people might say, even four years ago when that guy was in? Yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, because that's God's ways, not man's ways. So we should stop and say, where in the Bible is this addressed? And then start there. Now, I'm not saying that you that, that dictates a totally opposite behavior. You might have very good reasons for the ways you see different issues and so forth. But always stop. Always say, you know, 
first, let me make sure I'm satisfying what you're asking me to do here. And it could be something as simple as just praying for your leaders. You know, even just that, by the way, will change your heart many times, or at least your focus. And you say, for example, my focus is on the good of the nation. You know, is it really better for us to be to be knocking down our leaders? Is that going to help the United States of America? You know, so things like that. Glorify my father. Well, he did that. And let me tell you, the Jewish authorities, they became more and more and more enraged at him when he did so. And as I already said earlier, this had started back, way back. You know, it started small, so we may not have noticed it. But it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. His conflict with the, with the leaders and the authorities, actually the religious leaders of Israel. So I want you to go back now to John chapter 4 as we wrap up this morning. John chapter 4, verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1. Things were just wrapping up with, with Jesus and with John. And John had just said, John the Baptist had said, he must increase, I must decrease. And at this point in time, now Jesus' disciples were starting to baptize. And then it's interesting what happens. You might think, well, wow, Jesus, your ministry is taken off. You're baptizing more. You know, you should stay here. And really, here's your time. Get all the people from Jerusalem. And they'll all, well, that's not exactly what happened. Look at John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea hmm, and went away again into Galilee. Now, why would he do something like that right here when his fame is really starting to take off? Well, the answer is because it wasn't time. See, at that point in time, he left because he saw what was happening and he saw basically it was going to head in the wrong direction. He had a time, but it wasn't the time. It won't be the time, really, for him to, to appear publicly as the Messiah until the last week of his life, his natural life. And so he knew it wasn't time. He did this again and again. I don't know if you recall, but in chapter 6, after he did the great miracle of feeding the 5,000, the folks wanted to make him king at that time. And he was the king. And yet it wasn't the father's time. So he was not going to allow that to happen. Okay. Look at now. Let's go forward. To another time we see this. Now we see it really building in chapter 5. I mean, it was subtle in chapter 4. It was this, this just, our, our indication was that the Lord said, wait a minute, the Pharisees have heard about this. I'm going to back away. Okay, very, very mild form of expressing an indirect way of saying, wait a minute, there's some animosity there. But by the time we get to chapter 5, it's full blown. Look at John chapter 5, verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Now, what had happened here, if you recall, was that he had come across the man that had been lame for 38 years. And he had healed, but according to the Pharisees and the leaders, the Jewish establishment, he made a critical error. You know, as if the Son of God can make a critical error, but because he did it on the Sabbath. And that alone, that was enough for them to persecute him. Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. What happens? The Jews persecute him. There's that animosity. There's that hate. Jesus will say later on, they hated me without a cause. 
there was just something about who they were and how how I just was really upsetting their work that that didn't take much at all. Okay. Then he answered them in verse 17. My father, notice where he goes. He doesn't try to placate them. He doesn't try to explain it. He says, listen, it's real simple. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. And that's it. That's enough. But this reason, therefore, the Jews were what? Seeking all the more to kill him. In other words, it's building the rage, the hatred, the desire to kill him. Why? Well, there's these, now they're saying there's two problems. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, in their mind that was enough. Although, by the way, they broke the Sabbath all the time themselves. It's interesting that hatred and hypocrisy are really, they're really connected, if you haven't noticed that. In any event, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And indeed he was. And so Jesus never backs away once the father has said it's time to engage. All right. This time, Jesus publicly repudiates these people, these leaders. And you can imagine that that drove them to new heights of rage, right? Arrogance hates to be repudiated. All right. So he leaves Jerusalem at the end of chapter five, heads for Galilee, and he ministers there for about a year. And now the time is drawing near for him to go back and return to Jerusalem. But when is that going to happen? Let's go back back to John chapter 7, verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here. And go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret. And he seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Verse 6. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. In other words, they didn't see any reason why he shouldn't strike while the iron is hot. They, they, they said, listen, you know what? Let's go now. Let's, 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 our time is always opportune. We don't have, we don't see any, we're not, we're not going to stop and think about what God wants here. All right. And plus, they didn't, they, they didn't have any concept of the world and the enmity of the world against God's son. For them, it, they, they were operating on a different plane. Come on, it's time for the feast. We're going. So, it will happen. Jesus will end up going to the feast. But here's the thing. It's going to happen on his father's timetable, not his brother's. And that's where, we'll end, that's where we'll pick it up next week. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning. Father, thank you that in your word, there is edification. There is building up. We thank you, Father, that's also information that you're teaching us, that your your promises and, and your principles and we also thank you that it challenges us and that we, 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 we also, in every message, there will be a challenge for us to change how we see things, to operate in a different way, to take, take your perspective rather than the world's. So we thank you for this renovation of our thinking that your word gives us. We ask now, Father, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that our hearts would be in the right place to bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
All right. I hope everybody has uh, communion elements. I imagine you do. Jack's very diligent about that. So I imagine you do. Let's prepare. We gotta find a way to get music back. Music. We need to get music back. That was the only nice thing about being at home doing the messages. I started to be able to play music. Can't really do that here because I need the big speak. Not the big. I don't have big speakers, but some speakers that make it sound good. But plus, I don't want to mess. Like <laughs> this thing is working. I'm not gonna do anything on this computer to mess it up. All right, let's get ready now just to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we're going to think back to where we've been in chapter 6 when Jesus talked about whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life. That's a gospel message. Well, Jesus was speaking, remember, to unbelievers in Capernaum mostly. And that message is believe in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and you will be saved. Jesus celebrated the first supper with the twelve, though. In private. And they all but one of them were believers. And so there, that's the difference between um, what he says about eating his, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Remember, that was a metaphor for the believing in him. Right? That's a message. But where we are now is as a family of believers. And the purpose of the Lord's Supper is different from that preaching that Jesus did. When Jesus, of course, said, this is my body to the apostles, and this is the new covenant in my blood, the 12, unlike the unbelievers, didn't think any of that was harsh. Remember, they thought that was the, the things that Jesus said, the unbelievers were difficult statements. Who can hear it? Well, Jesus said much the same thing, but because his apostles had eyes to see and ears to hear, and they were believers, those words were words of love. This is my body. Words of hope. This is the new covenant in my blood and promise. He told them to eat the bread in remembrance of him. You know, the Lord one day will drink the cup new, he says, in the Father's kingdom. And as we've seen this morning, that's the ultimate version of the Feast of Tabernacles. As he said in the Gospel of Matthew, he said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had given a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it all of it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So, there's a, so what am I saying? I'm saying that the Lord's Supper looks back. It looks back to the death of Christ for our sins, and it also looks forward. To when Christ comes back, he sets up his kingdom, feast of booths forever, and he will drink the fruit of the vine with his apostles. And then the Lord gives instructions to the apostle Paul. And he goes, gives those instructions to the church. And he tells us, Jesus told Paul, and Paul told us that whenever we eat that bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. You know, the Lord's Supper is a time for sharing. 
sharing in the bread, sharing in the cup, and a time for remembrance, bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. It's a time for recalling that Christ gave up his body for us on the cross. And it's time to reflect that his blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It established a new covenant between God and his people. So for us, communion, the Lord's Supper is a time to bring to our remembrance, to stop again and remember and think about it. Think about the reason and think not not, not the elements in and of themselves, but what they, the meaning, what really happened for us. Christ did give himself up a sacrifice for our sins. It's a time of reflection, bringing into remembrance the lamb that was slain for our salvation. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, and we have all been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we just ask now, Father, that we would, having remembered what your Son accomplished for us, the sacrifice he made on the cross for our sins, that we would understand that this is a life-giving message to everybody, that Jesus died for everybody, and that he is the light that enlightens every man, and that we have the privilege of being his ambassadors and preaching the word of reconciliation to the world, to the unbeliever. And Father, we, we ask on this of all days that when we bring into remembrance his death, that that way spur us on to an action, that action being willing to speak boldly of who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished for every man and woman. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. John. All right. This Thursday Bible study. We'll be we'll come here again if those who want to those people who want to be with us face to face. Um, but we meet on the next room down. There's a conference room. That's where we meet on Thursdays. Continuing in the book of Isaiah. Six yeah, six thirty on Thursdays. And we also pray at the end. Please uh, send us your prayer requests. And um, our giving policy, as I mentioned before, is uh, not to tithe, but rather to um, obey the commandments that the Lord laid out in Second Corinthians. Those, that's the giving for the church, chapters 8 and 9, where we are to just realize, and again, this can happen through prayer, through meditation on God's word, about God's generosity toward us. 
about the fact that Jesus is the gift beyond imagination, about how the Lord has blessed us in the same way that the Jews were blessed at the harvest, and then they had their time of celebration, and the time of Thanksgiving. It's that heart that the Lord wants us to give out of. So just, just keep that in mind. Consider the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everybody. The message is that all people fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. And that we're all sinners and that Jesus Christ came. He's God and he came in the flesh so that he could go to the cross. And he did and die for our sins. Jesus died. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. So that whoever believes in Jesus, the Savior, the Lamb of God, God who takes away the sins of the world, whoever believes in him by grace, through faith, not of works, it's a gift, and you receive the gift in believing, whoever believes in him will never perish, no longer under the wrath of God, but will have eternal life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the message that the Lord asks us to give to unbelievers in our life. All right, let's close again. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for all your gifts for us. Help us to be like the Jews at the end of their agricultural year when they thought back on all the blessings, on all that you had brought them through successfully, delivered them, rescued them out of, given to them. Help us to be the same way, only not just at a certain time of year, but every day. Help us to have that heart of thanksgiving. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.